Father, we just thank you for your love that was so great that it washed our sins away, that it, Lord, held you to the cross, Father, that it was the expression of, of just the love and compassion that you had for mankind that brought us to the foot of the cross in which your love was lavished upon us. And so once again, as we open up your word, Lord, especially that which was written so long ago, I pray, Father, that we would see your love and compassion to be reminded, Lord, of all that you've done, but also to be inspired in all that you want to do. So we lift up tonight to you once again that you would speak to us and guide us in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him, Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday Sunday to you, Mickey. You need to be more forceful. Rise. Let it rise. uh, I guess so. (laughs) You've been dissed. (laughs) I'm not standing. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 16. We're especially privileged tonight as Bob and Tina have decided to join us. (laughs) We thought you backslid, but here you are. (laughs) 2 Kings chapter 16, as we continue to go through the kings of Israel and kings of Judah, we're going to the north and going to the south, and we're going to be taking a trip to the south, the southern kingdom of Judah once again. And just in way of review, Israel is divided at this point. There is the northern kingdom of Israel. There's the southern kingdom of Judah, which encompasses both Judah and Benjamin. And so we have this series of kings that is leading the north to Assyrian captivity. We'll be looking at that next week. And the south is headed towards Babylonian captivity, still a ways away. But because of their disobedience in the Lord... Because they had forsaken the Lord and they sought after the false gods of the land, God delivered them into their hands. Now tonight in 2 Kings chapter 16, we're going to have one of the worst kings of the southern kingdom. A few of the kings, I believe it was out of 20-some kings, eight of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Well, here's one who probably did the most evil of them all, Ahaz. Ahaz was a man who not only had no desire for the Lord whatsoever, his passions were for the gods of those who were of the land. And so basically tonight the lesson is going to be on what you got when you don't got God. Again, what else is there without the Lord? And so by ways of remembrance and the way to start off tonight, if you'll turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to look at who we were and how we were before Christ entered into our lives and caused us to be born again. Just a little reminder so that we would be reminded that as Ahaz was, so were we. We're without God in this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 12, and really it's an interesting section of Scripture because 
Verse 12 told us who we were, but in verses 13 through 22, it speaks of who we are now. Now, there's a five-point list in, in verse 12, and each one of those is defined in the subsequent verses that follow. And so in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Each and every one of us was just like that before the time that we were born again. And so first you were without Christ. But then verse 13 shows us the change. But now, but today, you are now in Christ, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When it says by the blood, by the blood of the Lamb, whatever it might be, washed our sins away by the blood, the idea is is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Christ dying, paying that price, because it was a price that our own deaths could not pay. We would be experiencing eternal death or eternal separation from God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you were who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We didn't come near, we were brought near because of the sacrificial death of Christ. Secondly, we see who we were. We were aliens from the commonwealth. That means you were void of the blessings. In verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, from Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. We are no longer at war with God. We are now at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. All the blessings that were promised to Israel. Well, God still has promises to Israel that have yet fulfilled. And all the promises that God has given to Israel are not necessarily fulfilled in the church. But as for today, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ. And so as God had blessed Israel with giving them his word and watching over them, God does the same. So at one time, we were without Christ. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And thirdly, we were strangers of the covenants of promise. We see this in verses 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father. We have, and really what he's speaking of here is the fulfillment of the promises of Messiah. Messiah, Jesus Christ who changed it all. Christ who entered into our life so that you can sit here tonight and you can dwell upon what you used to be, but you can focus upon who Christ has made you to be tonight, but also have an understanding in who he is making you be tomorrow and in the future, that more and more we would become more like Christ, especially in this dark present age, that we would reflect Christ to this world that is perishing. I mean, did you see the people running around in Hawaii? I mean, I can't imagine to get that that notice on your phone saying that a ballistic missile is on its way. And, And for a period of time, I think it was only like 20 minutes or something like that until they said, never mind. I mean, there's a nuclear missile coming. Oh, wait, never mind. But that lasted about 20 minutes. Can you imagine all that had to go through their minds, where am I going to go? Where am I going to run? 
Where am I going to hide? What happens when you can no longer do for yourself? Well, the only one that has hope, and it's amplified during a time like that, are those who put their trust in Christ. My life, my life is hidden in Christ, but more importantly, my death is hidden in Christ as well. You are without Christ. You are aliens from the commonwealth. You are strangers from the covenants of promise. And fourthly, you had no hope. Verses 19 through 21. Now, therefore, and again, this is all about the change, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. My hope, again, hope is trusting in God for the future. God's doing a work. He's doing this work of construction within my life today. He's building me into all that he desires for me to be. And even on top of that, one day, he is going to take me unto himself. My great hope is that he has gone to prepare a place for me. And it's in him that I trust, and it's that day that I so long for. Before, I had no hope. I had no future. Matter of fact, I did have a future, but I was destined to destruction. But now I have a great hope, and it's tied up not in me and what I'm able to do, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fifthly, you were without God in the world. Verse 22 is who we are now. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now God dwells inside of me. Before I was separated from God, I was enmity with God, but now God, God is with me. God's with me in all situations and circumstances. And we touched on that concept this morning as we were wrapping up our studies in Hebrews chapter 11 as we saw the difference that faith makes in our life and the control that God has over the events of mankind so that my faith can be strong regardless of what's going on. God's given us this greatness. He's given us such richness. Do you meditate on these things? And what I mean meditate, just, just focus, contemplation, just considering these things of all that God has done, all that God's doing, and all that he has for us in this future. When we focus upon those things, it, it's a deeper form of worship that wells up inside of us. It's not just the singing of the songs, but it's a praising of God who has altered our lives, and we have that guarantee of that alteration through to that time when we are in his presence. And again, you look at all that God has done, remembering in who you used to be, at least just in your attitude and your personality, and you see the change that has come about. But then you look at somebody, and you can go ahead and turn back to Second Kings, somebody like Ahaz, who forsook all of that, had a man who was of absolutely no faith, had a godly grandfather and father, but had no faith in the Lord whatsoever. And because he did not have faith in the Lord, he was not well-pleasing to God. His faith, his faith was in himself. It was of the false gods, of the people who had gone before him, and the surrounding nations. It's not going to end well. And so tonight, this new southern king Ahaz, a man uh, of Israel, or I should say the southern kingdom of Judah, who is anything but governed by God. Matter of fact, he rejected God at every opportunity and had an adverse effect upon the people that God had given him stewardship over it. 
It's very unfortunate. When leadership is corrupt, the people suffer. In Proverbs 14.34, we're told, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. As I stated just a minute ago, Ahaz is the grandson of godly Uzziah and also the son of godly Jotham. We looked at their lives last week, but he's a man who has carved out his own testimony, as all of our children will. And when I say children, I mean everybody that you have influence over. We pour ourselves, and how much more so, into our children's lives. But again, as I've said many times before, if you're a born-again believer here tonight, somebody looks to you as an example of who a Christian is to be. You are a leader. And so I want to give of myself to those whom God has given me to lead that they wouldn't, not see Mike, but they would see of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I say I give of myself, not so much to them, but give of myself to the Lord, And as I do that, I set a standard in so many people's lives. There's even going to be people's lives that you're unaware of that look to you and see Christ in you. Well, they can also see the world in you. They can see the flesh in you. And they can see the devil in you as well as you go contrary to God in the ways of God. And so this man Ahaz was a man who did not do what was right in the sight of God. And we've seen this concept of bad kings who are the offspring of good kings and good kings who are the offspring of bad kings. And so how does that play out in, in those whom we've been given to lead in our, our children's lives? That's going to be end up in the long run between them and the Lord. But I do see the influence that we are able to have I see the power of prayer that we have. I see the necessity to fast. I see the reality of pouring the word of God into them. And I just see, yeah, they're going to make their decision. There's no doubt about that. But as much influence as we have, we need to exercise that influence. A person's salvation is a standalone event that occurs between a holy God and a submitted mind. A parent can have a great deal of influence here, but is not invited into the moment of decision. That will be between the child or, again, whoever it is that God has given you to lead and a holy God. I can, I can have influence in that, but again, when that decision happens, it's going to be between God and them. Ezekiel 33, verses 18 and 19 says, When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does not, or and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. And so I continue to pray. I, I pray for my kids who I believe are walking in the Lord, but I continue to pray. I pray for my grandchildren, some of them doing very well, but I, their testimonies obviously are incomplete at this point, And I want to see them achieve victory in God and not failure in the world. There was a man, Job, and we know Job for all that happened to him, all the hardship that he went through. But you need to see that this man was a righteous man, and you need to see the expression of his righteousness. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And so this tells me, looking at the Bible as a whole, Job wasn't a perfect man, but he was a man of faith in God. It says, and he had seven sons and three daughters were born to him. 
also his possessions, and it goes through his possessions, skipping down in verse 4. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of fast, I'm sorry, feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Job was proactive in the lives to the best of his ability and those he had influence over representing them to God, again, to the best of the ability that God had given them. Now, I don't know of the heart of Uzziah or the heart of Jotham as far as in this young man Ahaz, but I do see the effects of Ahaz's flesh that he rejected a holy God. So what we'll look at tonight is this evil king and how he's conducting his leadership over a kingdom when he doesn't have a relationship with God. And so the first thing that I want to look at is that a person, or what a person has when he does not have God, he's got a corrupt character. And we see this right off with King Ahaz, verses 1 through 4. In the 17th year of Pekah, now we saw who that was, he is currently, I mean at this time of verse 1, he is the king of the northern kingdom. And again, that goes back and forth when he addresses the northern kingdom, he'll put him in the time frame, the writer of 2 Kings will put it in the time frame of the southern kingdom as well. So it says again, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramilia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. Now when it says his father David, David is the example. These are all of the lineage of David, of King David, and so a descendant of David would be spoken of as a son of David, and David spoken of as their father Again, we just saw that Jotham was his natural father, Uzziah was his grandfather, and you can work his way back all the way through to King David. Verse 3, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Well, just as I said, there was about eight kings that did what was right in the sight of God in the southern kingdom out of about 20. Well, out of about 20, I think it was 22, there were no kings in the northern kingdom that did what was right in the sight of God. Again, verse 3, And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places on the hills and under every green tree. And so the comparison of character that the Holy Spirit uses here to gauge Ahaz is King David. And so I think we should keep that. And so today we would use the Lord Jesus Christ and cling to grace when we fall short. But keep it in mind that King David's character, it only survived as being good, is because of the grace of God. And because, not because he did well, but he did pursue God. He did seek after the Lord. He understood his shortcomings in life, his sin in life, but he still sought after the Lord. Keeping in mind that, well, when we studied King David's life and King Saul, you didn't see a big difference as far as their outward actions. David, he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. 
He neglected his family and many other things. He exhibited a lack of faith at times, but he did seek after God even though he was imperfect. So if you would ask God, what's up with David? Lord, how come it seems like Saul's not going to be in heaven, but David seems to have this special place within your sight? I mean, you see all that he did, but you gave him such rich promises. And even as your scripture says, and Pastor Mike said this morning, you inhabit eternity, so you knew the future, you knew what David was going to do, and nonetheless, you still set him as king over Israel and his descendants to seat upon the throne all the way through to eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, speaking of God, it says, when he had removed him, when he removes King Saul, he raised up for them, he raised up for Israel, David as king, to whom also he gave testimony. This is God giving testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. And so there's the blessing there, and there's the hope for us. It's not about how good David did. It's that David had a heart to seek after God. What does it mean to have a heart to seek after God? Well, I have to seek after God according to what God has given me to seek after him. The greatest place to see David's heart for God is in the Psalms that he penned. We're not going to get into the life of David, although we do see a great example Psalm 51, it was penned after the sin with Bathsheba. And don't just look at it, the sin of Bathsheba, but also the murder of her husband, Uriah. And it wasn't just Uriah that got killed. There was other men who died as well. So David was definitely culpable. He was very imperfect. But again, we see how David dealt with his sin. He says in Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4, For I acknowledge my transgressions. Do you acknowledge your transgressions or do you ignore them? Now, what's a transgression? What's the difference between a sin? Sin is missing the mark. It's just being imperfect because we're imperfect people. A transgression, it stems from that as well, but a transgression is willfully sinning. That's knowing what God expects and still acting contrary to what God desires of you. And so David says, I acknowledge that, Lord, I knew what you expected of me. I knew the difference between right and wrong, and I chose to do that which was contrary to you anyway. Now, that can be a hard thing to do, because remember Adam? Adam knew that he transgressed. Adam knew what he had done in the sight of God, and so when he knew that God was coming, what did he do? He hid in the bushes, but God found him. And the reason that God found him, because if God doesn't find him, when Adam dies, he dies in his sin and spends eternity apart from God. But God found him and God confronted him. Why? Because sin needed to be dealt with. David understood this concept, so he acknowledged his transgressions. Because again, you you can put on the, the facade before me, I can put on the facade before you of perfection, but the one thing, well, two things that I know is, I know all of my sins. I know all of my transgressions, and I know that God knows of them. That being the case, I need to be upfront with them. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin, my imperfection, is always before me. He's mindful of that. As, as, as we have sin in our lives that is unrepented of, it's always in the forefront of your mind, especially when it comes to worshiping the Lord and seeking the Lord. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, 
that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's been quite a few years ago. I don't remember how long. It was around 2007, 2009. I, I did a, uh, a topical study on repentance, and I used Psalm 51 because it's an amazing psalm. When you get an opportunity, we're not going to go through and read it all, but read Psalm 51, and you see the heart of a man whose heart beats after God in his imperfection, seeking that God would cleanse him and do a deep cleansing from inside, that he would completely wash him and his spirit would not depart from him. See, King David saw the spirit depart from King Saul, and he didn't want to be placed on a shelf. He wanted to serve his God. And so what you need to see in all of that is that which is more notorious than the sin is his repentance. Is a repentance before a holy God. And God, just as he has done with us, he lavishes his love upon him. Now, we got a, that, that's kind of an interesting concept because we can so, be so quick, and just hear me out on this, and how God loves you and how God loves all of humanity. Well, the Bible tells us that God loves the world and gave his only begotten son. So there's no doubt about that. Christ went to the cross in a spirit of love. But also make no mistake, those who are apart from Christ, we just saw in Ephesians chapter 2, they're at enmity with God. They're enmity, they're, there's a war that is going on there. And the only difference between us and them is that we repented and submitted ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. The others, even though God does love them, they're at enmity with Him. And if they die in their sins, they die for eternity separated from God. Make no mistake about it. It is a reality, and we ought not to soften it because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that brought Adam out of the bush. It's the goodness of God that caused King David to acknowledge his transgression and repent before his holy God. And it's the goodness of God that washes our sins away. But we've got to have that mindset, that heart that beats after the Lord, that that first beat needs to start at the point of repentance. And it's then that we are washed clean and no longer at enmity with God. So the question seems to be in the evaluation of character, who does the sinner seek after? Where is his heart? What we're going to see here in a little bit, King Ahaz When there was times of trouble, when the difficult day came, he sought after the world and the assistance of the world so much that, as we'll look here in just a second, he even sacrificed his son. King David, in his his sin, he just simply sought after the forgiveness of God. And guess what? The forgiveness of God is enough. It's enough. There's nothing else needed after God has forgiven our sins. Remember what he says? He's washed our sins away as far as the east is from the West. He chooses to remember them no more. And so we can never forget that our children, they're really God's children, just as the children of Israel were God's. And we see this evil king. And what did he do? He took God's children, those whom he had been given stewardship over, and he made sacrifices out of them. Again, verse 3, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So there's two things here. He's walking in the ways of the kings of Israel. We pointed this out before. Jeroboam at the point of the split of the kingdom when the north was separated from Judah. 
he didn't want his people going into Jerusalem and making sacrifice there, so he set up a sacrificial system in the northern part. The problem is that's contrary to God. So Ahaz was participating in that, but also he was participating in the abominations of the nations who God had already cast out. And what did he do? He made his child go through the fire. What does this mean? Well, in essence, it means he tortured him to death. He burnt him. He made a, 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 um, a burnt offering out of him. And really what they had was this bronze bull that they would heat over a fire. It was hollow inside. And because they were going to kill their kids, but they didn't want to watch it, they would put their children inside of these things and made a sacrifice like that. I can imagine you would hear the screams as they, they would, well, you can just imagine. But it's a little bit worse than even it says here. Because see, here a son is spoken of, but in the account in Second Chronicles, we are told that he, built, he burnt his children in the fire. So it wasn't just one son. I would imagine, since it just speaks of one son here in Second Kings, but then plural, children in Second Chronicles, I assume he sacrificed a son and he probably sacrificed daughters as well. I mean, I, I look at my children, now I, I look at my grandchildren, a couple of them who are still considered to be babies, and I can't imagine the callousness of heart that would do something like that. How this man could be so self-centered and apart from God that he would do that to his own children. But you can look at him, and he is an evil man, there's no doubt about it, but we've got to consider ourselves because there are ways that we could cause our children to pass through the fire. And it's not a physical sacrifice, but a spiritual sacrifice. This is to not train them up in the way that they should go, to ignore the Lord and not teach the Lord to them. This is to provoke them to wrath, to be overly legalistic in their lives and cause them just to give up and to surrender, to misrepresent God before them. This is for our deeds to hinder God's word as we are to be examples of them of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember my father telling me, don't do as I say, or don't do as I do, do as I say. And that just doesn't work because what you do as a child, you take the whole package. And it's that which truly ministers to you. It's your children that really know the truthfulness of the desires and passions of your heart. I've had people come into the church and put on, a, as I said earlier, a good facade, act so spiritual here, but as far as soon as they leave in the parking lot to act the hypocrite, play the hypocrite, and their kids see that, and their kids come to the realization, if that's what a Christian man is, if that's what a Christian woman is, I want absolutely nothing to do with it. And we cause our children to pass through the fire, if you will, when we do that. There is only one human sacrifice that is acceptable to God, and it ha does not have to do with them. It has to do with you. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, He's begging, I beg of you, brothers and sisters, that by the mercies of God, because God is merciful, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. He says, it's your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and perfect will of God. And he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies or your lives as a living sacrifice. A 
sacrifice of death is an unclean for a human being is an unclean thing in the sight of God. Now, I can die for God, but God's never asked me to die for him. God's asked me to live for him. And matter of fact, dying for him, that might be the easy part, but to live for him, and what I mean by that is to die to the flesh and live to the spirit, that can be the difficult thing. That you present your bodies, that you present your lives as living sacrifice, holy, or putting forth that effort to be like Christ, acceptable to God, which is based upon his word. And it says here, this is the very least you can do. This is your reasonable service. And so again, it's that which we're informed of and we work on as we sit in Bible studies, as we open up the Word, as God teaches us and instructs us what is necessary to have a good Christian character. And well, to have a good Christian character, I need to die to my character of the flesh in order for that to have an effect in and through my life. It is right in God's sight that you sacrifice your will for your children and, again, those whom you have influence over. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Remember the issue of God who is and the gods of the land who aren't? It was decided a long time ago. I pointed out this morning, it was decided in Egypt as God defeated their gods because they didn't exist and he did and he delivered his people with an outstretched arm and a strong hand. As they entered into the promised land, God says to enter in for I will fight for you. And God did and God expelled the gods of the people of the land along with the people as long as his people were obedient. But God once again achieved a great victory and so Israel would see that this God fights for us and they would see that there is a tangible reality to this God in our worship of him that we would not come before the gods of the world for the purpose of worshiping them because they couldn't do anything for their own people our God achieved the victory why would you forsake this holy God of the scriptures and go after the gods of the land that couldn't do or couldn't or wouldn't we know couldn't do anything for the people that were there Nonetheless, you see the hard-heartedness of mankind. Problem, the Israelites kept resurrecting them and pulling them back to a place of prominence in their worship, and they paid a great, terrible price for it, and their children did as well. Those gods of our past life, those gods that didn't exist, we just need to let them die and to be buried and to be done away with, and we need to live towards our holy God. Isaiah 8, verses 19 through 20. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Question mark. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so again, there was that contrast of people seeking after the gods of the land, seeking after the death versus seeking the holy God. Second, the second thing that a person has when he does not have God, well, we just saw a corrupt character, and secondly is corrupt collaborations, verses 5 and 6. 
Then Rizan, king of Syria and Pekah, we saw him last week, he was a king of the northern kingdom, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz and could not overcome him. At that time, Rizan, king of uh, Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwelt there to this day. The reason that Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, formed this alliance and came up against Judah is because Ahaz has refused to ally ally himself with, um, with them against the king of Assyria. Assyria is now coming upon the scene. Assyria is this ruthless nation. And again, I draw parallels between Assyria and ISIS. You saw how ISIS kind of came out of nowhere and all of a sudden they were ruthless and they were ravaging the land. Well, Assyria did that even to a greater degree. And so Syria, which is a different nation than Assyria, Syria was concerned about this. They're neighbors of Assyria. And then Israel was as well. And they formed this alliance to come up against Assyria. And they were trying to get the southern kingdom of Judah to join in with them, King Ahaz, but he refused to do it. Matter of fact, he's going to end up aligning himself, aligning himself with Assyria. They're wanting to depose him from the throne and replace him with a friendlier rule. So they attack, and we're told elsewhere that they kill one of the king's sons and a few of his officials, but they can't penetrate the walls of Jerusalem. It's a strong fortress, so they move on and take a more vulnerable city. We had seen previously that Jotham, both Jotham and his father, um, Uzziah, had strengthened the fortifications of Jerusalem, and so it serves Ahaz well. And so we see this one little city. It's on the Gulf of um, Aquaba, which is in southern eastern Israel. It was separated from the northern kingdom and from Syria. And so that's more than likely why the Edomites were able to take it over. Pretty insignificant, but they probably just wanted to leave a reminder. So Syria takes many people prisoner and brought them back to Damascus. Israel did as well, but in doing so, they crossed the line. They were taking them away for slavery, and they took the plunder. But we see in Second Chronicles 28, as they were going into the northern kingdom with all of these captives, God sent a prophet and said, you've crossed the line here. Because a Jew was not to take a fellow Jew captive and bring him into slavery. And so they ended up sending them back. So once again, we see that God is still active here. He's still speaking to the people of the north and convicting them of their sin, desiring that change and that repentance. And he's also watching over the south as well. But as godless as the southern kingdom had become, the northern kingdom always was and always will be until Assyrian captivity, a godless nation. Now, what we need to see next is how in the midst of all that's going on, God is protecting his people and honoring them. This should have gotten the attention of Ahaz. It's in this times of trouble and even correction that God is our help. He hasn't completely forsaken his people. And I'm sure you've all experienced that as well. That you, if, as, long as, as long as I seek after God, then, then God blesses me. But even those times when I wander off, God corrects me. We're going to look into that in a couple of weeks in Hebrews chapter 12. But I see the hand of God, and as he moves into my life, I see that he still and he always cares for me because I am a child of God. 
In 2 Chronicles 28.16, it says, At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. He's basically bringing the attention of Assyria onto Judah. Rather than seeking after God, he's seeking after the ruthless of the world. Verses 7 through 9. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. He's basically kissing up to him. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. So do you see the compromise? His attention is no longer towards the Lord, but his attention is towards this pagan king. He took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Kerr and killed Rason. More than likely, as the Assyrian army, I'm sorry, as the Syrian army was down south besieging Judah, this Assyrian king realized he had an opportunity. He went into Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, defeated it and killed the king and was able to take the country over. The problem, when you separate yourself from God, as Ahaz has, you must then join yourself to the world. The problem is, is that the world is perishing while God's people are able to thrive. Let me ask you, have you ever met an Assyrian? There are no Assyrians. Have you ever met a Jew? I'm sure we all have. God's been able to keep them. And so we see God's promises and how faithful he is to those whom he has called his own. What we see here would be the anti-type of what we've been looking at in Hebrews chapter 11. There is a great lack of faith in this man. James 4, verses 4 through 5. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And so he has made himself, Ahaz has made himself a friend with the world, but now he has made himself an enemy of God. With this corrupt collaboration, Ahaz is just digging himself a deeper hole. Thirdly, the third thing that a person has when he does not have God, well, we saw corrupt character, corrupt collaboration, but now constant compromise. Verses 10 through 18 now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus, so Urijah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burnt his burnt offerings and the grain offerings, and he poured his drink offerings and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from in front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. The idea is is that the altar that God prescribed for Israel to make sacrifice, he kind of just pushed it aside. 
Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar burn the morning burnt offerings, the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering, and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. The idea is, is that the altar that God had commanded his people to... to um, to burn the sacrifice on, he's going to use for pagan purposes to inquire by. It's the idea behind that. Thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen and were, uh, that were under it and put on it pavement of stones. Also, he removed the Sabbath pavilion, which had been built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. So apparently, this is something either the king of Assyria had commanded him to do. The verbiage doesn't really lend towards that. But more than likely, what Ahaz is doing here, he's trying to impress him. He's trying to gain his favor. Remember, he called himself his son. Again, he's submitting himself to this man. And so we're seeing how the change comes in this ungodly king and how he has even affected the priesthood, Uriah. Uriah is just bowing down for all these ungodly things that he's commanding to do. Remember King Uzziah? We looked at it last week. What did he do? He went in the temple to make sacrifice, that which he was commanded not to do. No king was able to go into the temple and offer the sacrifice himself. And what did the priest do? Well, because godliness reigned in that land. They withstood him. Matter of fact, they came up against him, and he was, ended up being cast out of the temple. But no longer do we see this boldness because men are no longer seeking after the Lord. So what we must keep in mind here is the purpose of the altar is commanded by God. Very important, obviously. It was the place. Now, the altar was built according to the specifications of God in... Exodus chapter 24, God told him exactly, Moses, how to build basically all of the implements and all of the furniture of the tabernacle. He says they are to be made specifically, and we know that's because they were to be a reflection of God's dwelling place in heaven. But now, what is he doing? He's using pagan influence to worship a holy God. And these are things that ought not to be. They took the old one away and put in this new one. And I would imagine in a worldly mindset to the worldly eye, the new one, it was probably more grand and glorious, but it's not what God desired. What's grand and glorious in the sight of man is not necessarily so in the sight of God. And so God was no longer going to offer a sacrifice that was made upon the altar of a pagan god. And so what we need to see once again is the importance of the altar back then, but also the importance of it today. The altar, it was the place where the sacrifice for sin was to be made. This was God's directed means of covering sin. What happens when you're no longer able to cover sin? Then you're never really of the mindset that you're right with God. And so when sins aren't covered, that means they're exposed. If your sin's not covered, then you are seen in your sin. Secondly, it's the place where God is worshipped individually but corporately. And so the worship of God has been defiled. 
Thirdly, it's the place where man is made clean for entering into God's presence, into the Holy of Holies, and so that can't happen any longer. And it's fulfilled, and to bring it to application to our day today, its fulfillment is at the place where the ultimate sacrifice was made. The altar, it was fulfilled in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in that altar, on that altar, you would place the sacrifice there that was killed. On that cross, it's where the sacrifice that took away the sins of the world was placed. And it's where that sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, no longer covers but takes away, it's where that sacrifice was made. And so he's defiling God's will, God's desire, and God's plan. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. This man has made the altar of God of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you look at the cross of Christ, it's foolishness to the world. Your guy was hung on the cross and he died there. But they don't understand the magnitude of the sacrifice. You could look at that altar. Well, what's the big deal with that bronze altar? We can make something so much better. But that's what God has called them to have. That's where God desired to be worshipped. And so they're worshipping according to the ways of the world. So the fool Ahaz, he pushed the altar of God aside for the altar of a God who does not exist. And at the very least, his God now has become Assyria or the king of Assyria. And then lastly we see eternal corruption. Verses 19 through 20. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. You have Uzziah, who was a good king, He didn't do everything that he should have done, but he was still considered a good king in the sight of God. Jotham the same way. Ahaz the worst king, but he's a man who fathered Hezekiah, as we'll get into Hezekiah in weeks to come, who's going to be one of the most godly of all kings. And so you have this day, this day of, uh, of Ahaz, and it's why we honor the Lord. It's why we submit ourselves to God, why we have a spirit of repentance and our dependency is upon him and not in the world because every man, every woman in this place, every man through all eternity is going to die at some point. And it's at this point of death that your relationship with the Lord is going to loom very large. The king of Assyria at the day of his death could do absolutely nothing for him. Matter of fact, they took from him. He placed him, the king of Assyria placed Ahaz under tribute. And so he had to tax his people greatly in order to pay off that king to keep him from invading. Not only that, but he forsook the Lord. And I can imagine on the day of his death, who was it that he was seeking out? We're not really told, but still, there's nobody there. There's nobody there of any substance. And the reason that we seek after the Lord, the reason that we honor God and the reason that we worship God and we're obedient to his word and we pass along to the generations is because there's going to be the day of our death barring the rapture of the church there's going to be the day of our death and i want god for my life and i want god to bless my life but more than that i want god for the day of my death and that to be absent from the body i know that i'll be present with the lord it's the great hope that resides within us 
And that great hope is only built upon the strength of our witness and our desires today. And just like David, we're all imperfect people. But I pray that our testimony, I pray that God would speak of my testimony in the day that I leave. And I pray that you have the same desire. He was a man after my own heart. He was a woman after my own heart. And so God desires our heart. We must give our heart to him. Not in perfection again, but just in simple obedience. Father, we see these kings, these bad kings, these good kings, and and everything in between. But Lord, it's all going to lead us to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's that place of the cross, Lord, that you did make that perfect sacrifice that washed our sins away. And so, Father, because of that, we simply cling to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, realizing, Lord, how that death made us right in your sight. Father, I pray that we would be a people of repentance, that we would be a people of obedience, and again, that we would have hearts that would beat for yours. And so, Father, I lift up those who have come out tonight, that you would go before them. I pray that you would bring us home safe tonight. And pray, Father, that we would glorify you throughout this week. Lord, we just thank you for all that you've done today. We look forward, Lord, to all that you desire to. Lord, just give us opportunity to use the things that we've learned in our lives, that we would see the reality of you working in the lives of your people. And Father, that we would glorify your name in doing so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? I think Sean made the announcement, but we are having our Valentine's dinner coming up in February. I believe it's February 17th. And Richard had a pretty good idea of men giving testimony to their love for their wives. And in doing so, we're recording them, and then we're going to play them on that day. And so if there's any men who have yet to give their testimony, we will be recording them tonight in the high school room. So if not, prepare yourself because he's going to hound you until you do. Other than that, guys, have a great week. God bless you.
God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, safe ride home, and we'll see you next time. God bless you.